Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 202 for the 12th of June, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski, back in my remote location far away from Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. If you hear what sound like cricket noises again, it's not crickets because it's winter. The frogs are out and uh, they can put on quite a chorus. I think it's because it's been raining a bit. I guess I can add a note of my own. My my condo, which uh, overlooks the site of the 2015 Women's World Cup FIFA event. So there's some people outside uh, enjoying a beautiful day and making a little bit of a ruckus themselves. And I imagine that more than a few of them may have an iPhone. And I'm sure they're very excited about the upcoming security and privacy enhancements in iOS 9. What a segue. Actually, those iOS 9 announcements are interesting because it seems from a security point of view, there's nothing revolutionary that will shock everybody, but Apple's done the right thing and pushed the envelope a little bit. So they're saying, well, our idea of a simple passcode, we accept four digits, it's kind of enough, but not really, so we'll we'll get you to have two more digits, make it a hundred times harder for the crooks. We'll put two-factor authentication to everything. We've been adding it piecemeal, now we're going to go for it. Uh, and I see they also have this quite cute looking feature that if, if you've got multiple iDevices, which many people do, and someone steals one of them and then tries to log in from some weird location where you've never logged in before, it'll actually pop up a warning on the other device and say, hey, someone's trying to log in in Venezuela. Do you want to allow them? So provided they get that the right way around and it's not the crook able to lock you out of your device when he steals one, uh, that seems like quite a neat feature to me. Yeah, they've also made a lot of changes under the hood that uh, will be interesting to see how open they are down the road with this. They've introduced uh, some APIs to allow the interception or blocking of content in the web browser, for example. Um, they've added a feature uh, related to Google's efforts to do certificate transparency, which is sort of a a mass version of the EFF's project to kind of track what certificates you've seen were representing which domains and see if there's, you know, dodgy certificates appearing that, that look like they may have been falsely issued, perhaps. Not everything is flashy the way we think of it when we think of, you know, big Apple announcements. It really seems like this iOS 9 revision is lots of incremental improvements, some of them, like you're saying, that are quite visible, like the changes to passcodes and, and other things that are a little more hidden under the scenes, but may provide third-party software developers like ourselves the opportunity to enhance the services we provide on iPhone as well. So maybe you're right if Apple's opening the kimono a little bit in terms of third-party security products that really work preventatively, not just detecting bad stuff after it's happened. I think that's great because it's the one thing that I've always wished Apple would do on iOS. Just let third parties in, because as Microsoft proved when, when Microsoft did that in Windows NT, as it was, realized, hey, there's a malware problem. Let's let other people innovate as well as ourselves. Things actually got better, not worse. Yeah, I agree. So we'll, we'll see how open they are with it. Just because they have an API available doesn't mean that they're going to supply that to third party application developers. It's very early days, of course. This is all just being discovered at the worldwide developer conference going on at the Moscone Center in San Francisco this week. So You're right, because of course, even if they do let you do more funky security stuff in your apps, it's still Apple that decides whether your app makes it into the app store or not at the end of the day. Well, that's, that's very true. Now, it, it won't surprise people that Microsoft has uh, a legion of lawyers 
And it seems that they've been kept quite busy lately and that there was a update to Microsoft's all-encompassing privacy policy sent out to many users globally over the, the course of the last week. If I'm not reading wrong, you said has 15,000 words? Uh, there's also a new services agreement, by the way. I didn't count the words in that. I sort of lost the will to do so after seeing the privacy statement. Uh, they've actually done it quite nicely because it covers an enormous range of services, obviously. This is Microsoft we're talking about. They list them as Bing, Cortana, MSN, Office, OneDrive, Outlook.com, Skype, Windows, Xbox, as well as other unnamed services. The basic version that just gives a summary for each service and what they collect and what they do with it is 1,500 words. Uh, if you click the button that says expand all, then you actually get more than 15,000 words worth of privacy policy or privacy statement, as they call it. And for all that we've heard lately, people say, oh, privacy policies are too long. They should be really short. It can't be that hard. I actually had a soft spot for what Microsoft have tried to do here in that they're saying what they're collecting data for and they're admitting they collect a lot. And if you want to drill in for individual services, they're actually telling you in quite a lot of detail what they collect and what they plan to do with it. Also, I guess the other irony was that Google, of course, in the EU got into trouble recently for having a privacy policy that wasn't clear enough. It was felt to be too vague and should have had more detail. So Microsoft seemed determined not to make that same mistake. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't expect most people are ever going to read something of that length. But on the other hand, I do like this approach of the dual privacy policy that a few companies have done this now. I think LinkedIn does this and a few other organizations. The idea that here is the boiled down human readable version that you as a random user of our service probably wants to just kind of have the summary of what we're collecting, what we're going to do with it, and how you may opt out or whether you're able to opt out of different pieces of it. And then here's the version for the lawyers that if we ever have to go to court, this is the the very specific detailed things that we're going to abide by. And, and if you want to read 15,000 words, uh, knock yourself out. But overall, that 1,500 word summary is much more digestible and pretty much gives you the gist of it. It's long, but it's written in a in a reasonably comprehensible, in my opinion, way. It doesn't read in quite the almost pathological, loyally fashion that we've that we saw in privacy policies five, 10, 15 years ago. While we're on the subject of Microsoft, I'm just going to make a statement and hopefully we can abide by this for a while. But this week was Update Tuesday. And I'm not going to talk about the fixes. I'm just going to say go get them. And I think for future chat chats, unless there's something significant that has a, a reason to call out a given patch because of super high risk or a big change to the operating environment of Windows systems, uh, I don't know that there's really a, a good point in spending eight minutes talking about uh, a SQL privilege escalation bug, right? So this week, lots of important updates. Don't ignore them, get on them, but we're not going to iterate through them and detail them. I'll second that. And of course, Microsoft is understandably trying, I think, to soften us all up, ready for the Windows 10 more rolling update model where we're not going to get these batch of patches. And hopefully it'll only be the people who are stuck in the past uh, that want to delay them so that they get them once a month and that people get in the habit of patching on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. Why wait a month when you can wait 24 hours? Exactly. I mean, ask a given user what version of Chrome they have on their desktop and you'll be able to answer that question for yourself. Greater than 42 no, actually, version 42, I believe, is the current release. It was released a few weeks ago. So, <laughs> Good old Douglas. 
somebody now see you know you ask a large enough group of people somebody's going to know the answer but the point is we don't obsess over it anymore and that's the important bit and you know sometimes patching your own systems isn't enough and and i've i've grown a bit bored over the years of talking about the exploits of the syrian electronic army but it's worth revisiting one more time because these guys are really clever at finding that achilles heel in a given person's environment that they want to target and now the most recent uh, incident this week was with the United States Army appearing to be hacked and having a notice posted on their site. And it appears again that the Army itself was not hacked. It was their content delivery network or their bandwidth provider that hosts their web pages and makes them highly available that was hacked. Without going into too much detail, I just think it's a good reminder that we talk about supply chain in many different areas of security now and uh, computer security. And of course, that applies to your hosting providers and lots of all these other moving parts. Simply securing your systems may not be enough. You need to be looking at everything from the the start to the finish. Yes, and that's particularly true when you're an organization like the U.S. Army, for example. There's no suggestion that anything confidential or secret or even important was hacked, stolen, modified or whatever. But it's still a bad look. And that's the problem when you're trying to defend against attackers like this Syrian electronic army crew, is their goal is just to alert people to the fact that they're around. And unfortunately, that means they can succeed by hacking very little, but just creating enough of a visual disturbance that it sort of raises that question, well, I wonder how much further they might have got. So unfortunately, as so often in computer security, the devil really is in the details. and. There are lots and lots of details these days. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in addition to worrying about protecting our own systems, it's something to keep in mind when you're reading these sensationalist headlines in the media, right? Syrian electronic army breaks into U.S. Army. Um, take it with a grain of salt, folks. Lastly, wanted to talk about 49 people who probably had a pretty bad day when uh, their local constabulary showed up to arrest them related to a Europol investigation this week. 58 simultaneous property searches, I believe. That's quite a deal, isn't it? Italy, Spain, Poland, the UK, Belgium and Georgia. That's quite a lot of doors kicked down at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is really encouraging from a law enforcement perspective, right? That we can coordinate across so many jurisdictions to you know, have a simultaneous bust, which is really important in stopping the the alleged criminals from fleeing. In this case, it was a surprisingly small amount of money because we've gotten so used to these giant numbers in the fraud game. But uh, I guess $6.8 million ish worth of uh, uh, fraud against uh, bank transfers. They were man in the middling emails that were, that were sending a, uh, bank account numbers to transfer funds in to pay invoices. Isn't that an amazing thing to say when you think about the old days, physical bank robberies, the idea of getting away with six million euros, just carrying the banknotes would be hard enough and fitting them in the boot of the car would be fairly complicated. And now we're saying, oh, it was only six million euros, $6.8 million, that's nothing. Rather a sign of the times, isn't it, that that somehow doesn't feel a lot, even though it is an enormous amount of money. Well, it is a lot of money, although when we talk about these things, it's rare that we say, you know, hey, there were 49 arrests, so nearly 50 people. If you start splitting up 6 million euros across 50 people, the, the, the given amount of theft per person isn't enough to make you be able to go retire on a private island, right? 
it is spread rather thin compared to many of these cases where we're we're often talking about two or three criminals, say, behind a cryptoware infection and that they've taken $40 million. So let's hope that some of these guys bust were also involved in other operations and that them being bust will actually put a spanner in other crooks' works as well. Yeah, that that would really be the best outcome. And, and we've seen a lot of that in the past. In fact, back to crypto stuff, I mean, CryptoLocker, the original launching point of the modern ransomware activity, uh, was taken down by accident when another police investigation was at an ISP seizing servers under a warrant and went, oh, look, they've also got CryptoLocker keys on them. So, you know, the, the, the evidence that will be uncovered through the lawful investigation that was conducted this week could lead to many more cases uh, against the same crooks. And let's hope that people who are using email for secure correspondence take TLS a bit more seriously, because this was an email man in the middle, wasn't it? I don't know the exact details of how they did that, but you and I were discussing this earlier, the problem that in many cases, even when willing client and willing server actually agree to use TLS in a mail correspondence, there's nowhere as near the same level of strictness applied as we're used to in web transactions, is there? So there's often the case that one end might present a dud certificate and the other will accept it because, hey, otherwise it'll have to reject the mail and then what, I'm, what am I going to do? The tendency with email encryption seems to be to fail open rather than to fail closed. And that's the wrong way around. Maybe we need to take a little bit of email hurt and have undelivered emails and problems to shake out the fact that we could probably do a much better job with the encryption technology we already have available. Well, and the good news on that, I guess, is that the the world's largest hosting providers are largely using TLS and using it correctly these days. I certainly see most of the mail transacting on my server does come in via TLS, so that's encouraging. On that note, I'm going to wrap up Software Security Chat Chat 202. As always, the latest security news is available over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. This podcast is available via RSS on iTunes or the TuneIn app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or over at soundcloud.com slash Sophos Security. Until next time, stay secure.